You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I wanted money. Frankie Owens had it. He took it from a shiny red bank truck two days before Christmas. $400,000. Only, before he could take it, he had to kill the driver. Frankie was in jail now. The people of the state of California said he had to die. But only Frankie knew where the money was hidden. I'd like to kill you. Die, Chotomy. What a beautiful word. Die, Chotomy. Cotomy. Oh, you're beautiful, Margot. So beautiful. You're the only thing I hate to leave. Maybe you won't have to, Frankie. What do you mean? Listen, and don't interrupt. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always happy to be here. Also back with us this week is Ms. Krista Faust. Hey, kids. This week we are looking at the 1946 film from Jack Bernard, Decoy, written by Ned Young and based on a story by Stanley Rubin. The film stars Miss Jean Gilly as Margot Shelby, one of the most dangerous women since Vera and Detour. The film is a tale of deception and double crosses, and for many years was very difficult to see in any home video format, but once it was released, many people found it well worth the wait. So Maitland, I'm curious, when was the first time you saw Decoy, and what did you think? I first saw Decoy at some film festival, probably in the early 2000s, and I've actually been racking my brain trying to remember exactly what it was, and I can't, but... I just remember looking at it and thinking, well, holy moly, this movie is something amazing. I, I'm i a big fan of noir films generally. I love the figure of the femme fatale, uh, not only in films, but in literature. And quite honestly, Jean Gilly's femme fatale is one for the ages. That is one fucking terrifying woman, if I may start swearing. <laughs> How about you, Krista? When did you first see it? Well, I actually kind of have a little funny story connected to this film. The first time I met Alan Rohde, who is one of the co-hosts of the L.A. and actually all across the country now, uh, Film Noir Festival, along with Eddie Muller, uh, I was at Eddie Brandt's, which is a, a kind of a nerdy local video rental place. And I had heard a whispered rumor about a copy of this film on the loner list. The way they had it set up there was that, you know, you couldn't rent out illegally copied stuff, but you could give it to someone for free along with renting something else. So this was their legendary loner list. And they had an insane amount of stuff just from TV or from a friend of a friend. And there was this whispered rumor of this incredibly swimmy copy of a copy of a copy of decoy that had Croatian subtitles. <laughs> Somebody had somehow gotten this copy from Croatian television and duped it, and it was there on, on the Eddie Brandt loaner list. And so I was there in line, and I was renting some other noir titles because, you know, I'm also a huge film noir fan. And I said, you know, and I would like to get the loaner copy of Decoy, and here's Alan Rohde in the line. <gasps> you want to get a copy of Decoy? I love that film. And then we started talking about noir, and he told me, you know, that he was involved with the Film Noir Festival. Oh, really? That's awesome. Fantastic. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. That is actually so great because I also had a local video store called Video Place. And they also had a loaner box of stuff that wasn't commercially available on video. So they also could not rent it out. But you could bring things in and you could take things out as long as no money exchanged hands. Those were the kind best. of great 
What'd you think of it when you finally saw it with those Croatian subtitles? <laughs> well, I mean, for one thing, it was incredibly poor quality, which just added to like the berserk, surreal, bizarreness of the whole experience. Obviously, you, there's a there's a parallel you think you know with uh, with Vera with Anne Savage, you know, but like this is most definitely the most violent and the most shameless femme fatale of all time. There's that great shot of her looking up into the camera and saying, I wanted money. <laughs> and it's just like, there it is, in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen. It's simple arithmetic. Simple arithmetic. And it's all subtraction. Just taking away one guy after another. I love the way that this movie starts with that, the box on the bed. Somebody shoots at the box and then the gun gets thrown right next to it. The smoke, the literal smoking gun is going on. And we have that through most of the credits until we get to the femme fatale being introduced, you know, and introducing. And then we go to another scene under the credits. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of odd that we don't have just one thing happening. And we cut to this sink, this filthy, dirty sink, where we just see these hands and this guy turning the faucet and all this steam coming out and then, you know, washing his hands. And that's our introduction to one of our main characters, this doctor character that we have. And it's just like, okay, you know, already I'm kind of taken aback a little bit because it's like, what, what's the story with the box? What's the story with the gun? Okay, we, now we have this woman being introduced, and now we have this sink and this this faceless man for so much of it until the camera kind of tilts up, and then we see him reflected back at us. And it's like, what is this? What is going on? And then the way he kind of lurches out of that bathroom, I was really reminded of a zombie film almost because he doesn't say anything. He really has no expression the way he goes past the guy who's trying to make small talk, finally hitches a ride to San Francisco with this guy who really wants to be friendly with them. But this man is saying absolutely nothing. He just is completely deadpan. And that scene also reminds me of, of Detour. I mean, it very much is the same kind of, wow, you really did pick up the wrong hitchhiker. <laughs> and what I about that scene in that bathroom, first of all, is I look at it and all I can think of is that scene in Train Spotting that involves the dirtiest toilet in Scotland. That is <laughs> but I also love that at that point, this character really does look like a zombie, or even more to me, he looks like one of the dead people in Carnival of Souls, which gives it a very creepy horror movie vibe that is unusual in a movie that doesn't have any supernatural component. I mean, it well, <laughs> I think an argument can be made for that methylene blue being kind of semi-magical <laughs> as a concept. But I'll tell you, you're 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 absolutely right on that, and watching this incredibly crummy copy that I had that was real like swimmy and, and hard to make. I made that whole sequence even weirder. Yeah. Cause when I imagine when he looks up and sees his reflection in the mirror, you can still barely make out his face. Well, yeah. And just the way that, you know, it's just, just there, you know, like moving through in like a zombie, like you're saying, you know, I mean, that really gives you this disturbing feeling. And and I love that they just throw you into the story with no preparation whatsoever. Here's what's happening. Catch up. Yeah, eventually we get a voiceover. Eventually we get the flashback and we start to know what's going on. But that is quite a few minutes into the story. I think it's at least 10 minutes in. And, and until then, we're just completely we, – we don't have an anchor. We don't know who these people are. You know, eventually this guy makes it up to – he makes it to San Francisco, makes it into this apartment building. You see that he's not – really steady on his feet. He goes up to the apartment and then we kind of get the introduction of the Sheldon Leonard character, who's a fantastic name of, of uh, police Sergeant Jojo, AKA Joseph Portugal. And <laughs> then the whole idea of this zombie character going into uh, th this apartment right before the, the, the Sergeant can make it into the elevator and everything. And you just hear the single shot and it's like, okay, what is going on? And then when we open up the door, the strangest thing is that he, the man is, uh, who we eventually find out is Dr. Craig, has this 
it looks like a bullet wound to me, and he's kind of still slowly falling to the floor like this. Because Sheldon Leonard takes a long time to get up to the apartment door once he hears that shot, which is kind of funny. You would think he would run to it, but instead... Find a couple of cops in a car downstairs. Send one of them for an ambulance. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away. think that was strange at all though because to me watching it it was that he was dying the whole time i mean she killed him at the place where they found the money and he just by sheer force of will was able to make it that and he was because when he opens the door he says i'm taking her with me because he knows he's dying he's a doctor you know so he didn't have to shoot himself he was already dying at that point i think that's what i took away from it no i totally agree but when you see him, you don't necessarily know that he's been shot, and you see what looks like a bullet wound in his chest, which he had gotten earlier, but again, we don't know that. So it's almost like he had been falling since we heard the shot, you know, like he'd just been standing there, and it takes so long for the door to finally get open and for us to finally see him inside. It's just like, wow, was he falling that whole time? And then that we see her there and she's been shot it's like well wait a second i only heard one shot what the heck is going on she shot him before she shot him in the woods there was only one shot in the apartment and that was him shooting her he died from his previous wounds it's just that i think that it was a cheap ass you know five cent production and they didn't really have a lot of like bullets wounds and stuff so they only had minimal he only had the one suit to do the whole scene you know so I think that's why you don't see it. I don't think it's like a nefarious plan on the part. I think a lot of this was like real seat of the pants. Like they were just totally winging it. To me, it's a nice narrative conceit to to do this because as a viewer, we have no idea that he's been shot before. You know, we just know that he's acting kind of strange. So it just really kind of helps set up this mystery as far as, well, what happened? We only heard the one shot and she's shot and what's going on with this guy? And why did he shoot her? Why was there this tension in the room? Who's this detective that's coming into it? So it's a great way to set us up and just thrust us into the story. And then, yeah, as you said, the way that it becomes this deathbed confession and her looking right at the camera and talking to us, talking to the audience and taking us through this journey. It's, it's a, I mean, of course, flashbacks are a pretty common in film noir, but just the way that she's now kind of grabbing our attention and like, okay, now I'm going to lay it out for you. Now you're going to find out what happened. On the one hand, it's a very conventional story. And on the other hand, it's told in a way that moves in fits and starts. It almost makes it feel like a, a French new wave film. And there are enormous chunks of the narrative that are jumped over. And then there are things that you're shown in great detail. And you have a, a narration from Jean Gilley's character, Margot, telling you exactly what's going on. And yet all of it feels very staccato and a very disorienting kind of narrative. And that, that's something quite unusual for a movie made in 1946. I love when we get into the narrative and we are visiting the jail where um, Margot's uh, boyfriend, well, I can't really say boyfriend because it looks like he's about 30 years older than she is. But <laughs> Well, plus everybody in that movie is Margot's boyfriend. We meet Frankie, who seems to be the oldest prisoner there as well, because all the other people that are there in that line, the one kid who's just like, hey, Pop, we get to play baseball. And it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody seems so happy until you get to Frankie and then Margot talking to him. And it's just like, okay, this is the, what I'm used to when it comes to a film noir. But who are these other people? This is great. And next Saturday. That's well. Seems just yesterday. We get to practice baseball twice a week now. Isn't that great, Pop? Get hold of Vincent. Tell him O'Hara's no good. Tell him I want a new mouthpiece for the appeal. The best mouthpiece in the world. 
then we get to kind of hear the whole story of him having this money and her wanting it. And I love that he's so suspicious of everybody because he's got this money. He knows where the money's at, but then he tries to play it off. as like, oh, I got that money for you, honey. I want to, you know, dress you up in pearls and diamonds and, you know, expensive shoes. You like that, don't you? Yeah, but clearly the whole time he knew. I mean, there were, he was never fooled for a second. No, no, not at all. He, Frankie is definitely wise to the whole thing. And the thing is not, you know, I want you to be happy and beautiful. It's I want you to be pretty for me, honey. You can see those wheels turning through so much of this film, just knowing that she's trying to play everybody. And I think a lot of people know that she is playing them. I think the, the, the one person who doesn't seem to get that he's being played is Dr. Craig when we finally meet him. And boy, that is too bad for him because he gets played royally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you should have known when you got that job being a doctor in Noir City. And I love that it's not a, a, a love triangle here between the Doctor and Frankie and Margot, but there's the, the fourth part of it. We've got a love square going on here with the, with the uh, other gangster who uh, Frankie is very upset that Margot has been uh, chummy with uh, Jim Vincent. Those two scheming, pulling the Doctor into it, breaking Frankie out of prison, but breaking him out in... Yes, one of the most ingenious ways that I've ever seen by basically killing him <laughs> and then bringing him back to life. But like you were saying, Maitland, there's that whole thing of we we have this kind of courtship. We have uh, Margot and Dr. Craig getting together, and it's they go from their first meeting to them royally in love within a matter of moments. And it's just like, whoa, what happened here? What, what, what kind of time expanse is this? But I love that they could do that. She is not fucking around. There's no love triangle. This is a woman who is playing every single male in a 500-mile radius. And, I mean, she even plays Portugal. You know, and she has that little bit at the end where she's like, why don't you come on down to my level? And he does, and she laughs in his face. I mean, like, she is out for every single man that she gets near. And it's not even so much romance. It's just she knows putting them against each other is going to cause friction. And that's why she's doing it. I mean, there's no pretense that she's like, you know, she has any real emotion. And that's what I love about that character is that her cards are on the table. She's like, not only am I a femme fatale, you know I'm bad, but you're going to do what I want anyway because you can't help yourself. And that, to me, is, like, ferociously sexy. She is the quintessential money, honey. I mean, that is all she's about. And she says it more than once over the course of the film. She says, I want the money. That's all it is. And she is willing to do absolutely anything that is required of her to get the money. She doesn't care about any of those guys. She clearly has no female friends at all, which is no surprise because women tend to be fairly good about sizing each other up, whereas men can be distracted, shall we say. Um, <laughs> she's by herself and all money. Well, it's like she says, she keeps saying it's simple arithmetic. And like you were saying, Krista, it's just subtraction, getting all of these barriers between her and that money out of the way. And she'll add a character now and then she'll add Dr. Craig to the mix in order to then take him out of the mix, because it's all about getting that the, those Benjamins. She just wants to get that. What is it? It's not 45,000. It's got to be more than that, because that's how much... Uh, Jim has is it a hundred thousand that they're dealing with? It doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't. And I mean, you know, she does have that little. She makes that little speech about the dirty gray children on that that terrible street, and I'm never going back there. But at the same time, you almost feel like that's a con too. That's like her attempt to justify the fact that she's just an amoral monster and she just wants to win and get the money and it is worth pointing out it's four hundred thousand dollars which was a lot of money in 1946 oh yeah jim wanting 60 out of that i thought that was very expensive but then yeah if he's got four hundred thousand 
quite a heist he managed to pull off just to pay for those jewels and <laughs> expensive things. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny about this film too is that there's aside from the you know dubious drug that brings you back to life angle, which is totally unique. There's nothing new here. You know, everything is repurposed, reprocessed. You know, but it's done so. It, it, it's 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 a collage, but it's a genius collage, and just adding that wacko, almost science fiction horror twist of bringing back the dead, you know, it just makes it from just like a standard programmer, you know, cheapy, you know, B picture to something that's really great and really memorable. What's got so many nice moments in here, like uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording about the the interchange between the guard and the priest. When the Frankie won't talk to the priest, I guess the priest is very concerned because he wants to give him last rites or whatever, and Frankie won't talk to him. So Margot comes in to visit him. And that's why I asked to have you brought here first, Miss Shelby. He won't speak to me, refuses even to see me, and there are so few precious hours left. Hello, Frankie. Margot. What time is it? Five o'clock. Three more hours. Come here, baby. I want to look at you. New dress you got, isn't it? The gloves, the shoes, and that silly little hat. You're the only thing I hate to leave. Maybe you won't have to, Frankie. What do you mean? Listen, and don't interrupt. And I don't understand... What is it that makes them willing to die without yes, having... Yes, 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 what? Oh, well, uh, that is... So, see the chaplain, Frankie. Father, you can go in now. Yep, it's fuck you, Father. Nobody cares. <laughs> Lord doesn't care. Frankie doesn't care. Nobody cares. And yet, there he is. He's in his black suit, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. You know, offering spiritual solace uh, in the last moments of this man's life, even if this man does not care and would just as soon that a hole opened up in the floor and swallowed up that priest and then closed over his head. It, it is unbelievably cynical and, and nihilistic. It's really kind of fabulous. And actually, something I, I do have to say is that I did look up methylene blue, and it's actually a real thing. It will not bring you back from the dead. But, <laughs> Damn. But what it what it is what it was developed to do was to counteract cyanide poisoning. So, right, because it, it's the gas chamber. It's in San, it's in San Francisco in in California. So with the gas chamber out here back then, and the gas chamber used cyanide gas. Yeah, so that's right. You you just know that somebody you know somebody read about the cyanide gas and about this thing, methylene blue, that could counteract it and thought, well, wouldn't it be great if you could just take that one step further? Which is why I, I, I do feel that it isn't so much a supernatural component that this movie has as it is a science fiction component. It's a good, good distinction. That's a very, very good point. Though I do have to say, well, I guess there there's that that kind of blurring of lines when it comes to a Frankenstein story. And I was really, if 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 Doctor Craig at the beginning reminded me of a zombie, then bringing back Frankie from the dead totally reminds me of when they they give life to Frankenstein. I think what really does it for me is him kind of stumbling around in the room after they've given him, you know, the, the, they, they kind of bring him back to life and everything. And then the whole thing with the, the match when he, you know, lights the match and is able to blow it out. And of course I'm thinking, mm, fire bad, you know, <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. And that's the moment that brings him back to, he's like, I'm alive. I'm alive. Like, exactly. Wow. Exactly. But you know, that whole sequence is, it's very with the, the strange noises and the machinery and it's all very tense. And, I think that what really does give it a slight horror, not not supernatural, but a darker angle, is that it's not just that he's poisoned and they and they give him an antidote. He's literally dead, and then they ha are are transporting his corpse, you know, in order to revive it, which I, I just makes it. It just it's like that little turn up to eleven. It's like that just slightly not exactly real life, but weirder. Well, particularly because he's not just dead. He's been dead for a while. I mean, oh, yeah. they get him out of the gas chamber, out of that coffin-like box he's been put into, 
into another truck and then into that sadly makeshift laboratory onto a table. <laughs> a, a, good, a good amount of time has passed before they get around to reviving him. And, and that in and of itself is really disturbing because when he first gets up, he's clearly disoriented. He's having a little trouble walking. And the first time you see this movie, though it's hard, I'm sure, for any of us to remember back to that very first time when we didn't know exactly what was going to happen, part of you has to say, what shape is his brain going to be in? <laughs> you know, is he going to know who he is, where he is, uh, any of that? Because a lot of time has passed before his reanimation. And we all saw reanimators, so we know how that works. Here I am. You're talking reanimator. I'm thinking the Princess Bride and like, oh, he's mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Can I talk about how much I love those uh, those two guys that work at the morgue? <laughs> I mean, we've had funny morgue guys before, and that's kind of seems to be a staple now of like, you know, the wacky guy that works at the morgue. But these two dudes, and especially the one who's reading the dictionary and the other one who doesn't want him to read the dictionary because there's not, not enough story to it. I mean, wh what the hell? Dude? Who writes that kind of stuff? It is amazing. It's, a, it's almost a little Ed Wood-esque there with that, that entire kind. You got to wonder, like, how much of this is in the script, you know, and how much of this is just ad lib with these two weird character actors? Dichotomy. Dichotomy. Beautiful <laughs> word. So strange, but so wonderful at the same time. And it's those moments, I think, like that and the, the bringing back from the dead and all these things that it's what separates Decoy from the rest of however many hundreds of film noirs were made at this time. And where you do have, as you were saying, Krista, these interchangeable elements where it's just like, OK, there's a dame and there's a guy and there's a bag of money or a box of money in this case. And who's going to end up dead? Who's going to end up getting away with it? Will anybody get away with it? Of course, we know that the best film noirs don't. Don't let anybody get away with things. And this is right up there with that. But it's those moments like the dichotomy scene and stuff, which is like, oh, wow, this really brings something to the party. Well, and I also am like a long, long fan of pulp in general. And that kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be turned in by Tuesday kind of mentality. And I think that in a lot of ways, that speed is like a weird, delirious freedom that gives you like this almost a stream of consciousness, you know, and, and when someone is trying to write the great American novel, you can tell, you know, and they want to make sure that everything, all the little references are all really clever and everything is very highbrow. But when you, you don't have time for that shit when you're writing pulp, you know, this has got to be turned in like tomorrow. You know, so just put put a scene in where the guys read the dictionary, you know, and then and then somehow that 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 crazy freedom, it it's puts these little jewels, you know, in this cloth of kind of basic, uh, you know, collage that you see in a film like this. But but because they were like up all night shooting, they said, God, we got to get them from scene A to scene B. We haven't slept. Put some more coffee on. We're going to do this, this, and this. And they just go for it. You know, and that to me, there's, there's a real charm to these, these incredibly cheap, lowbrow types of stories that I think you can't, you can't do it on purpose. Although to some degree, I think you can, because there is clearly a sense of purpose in, in this film, in, in this film, in this story, in the way it's put together. It's just been heightened because it's basically like everybody's on speed. You know, they worked it out ahead of time, but now they've got to double time it all the way. Yeah, they're through. on stay awake pills, all of them. <laughs> they got those stay awake pills. Yeah, okay, Doc, can you give me one of those stay awake pills? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But no, it's not that I'm saying that, like, they didn't know what they were doing, but I just think that there was no pretension. There was no, like, this is going to be genius. It was like, we need, we need product. You know, the studio needs X number of films by this date. So fill that hole, you know, and in that speed.
speed of production, you find these little these little gems like this. One of the things that I also think we need to, to say about this movie is that Monogram was a very low-budget studio, but it was not the absolute bottom of the barrel. That would have been something like PRC. Yeah, by no means. So Monogram, although it was a very low-budget place, was still a studio where you could have some production values. Um, her apartment, that's a pretty nice-looking set. The apartment building, that's pretty nice. I love that elevator. I love that door. It's really fabulous. You know, you have your street scenes that, although they are clearly backlot scenes, are quite handsome scenes. You have those that open, empty road that we drive down several times over the course of this film. It actually is a more technically accomplished film than one might expect from a movie that was clearly made on an extremely low budget and was made extremely quickly. And it was made, as you said, because the movies at that time were a great big meat grinder machine where you had to keep putting product in there so that people could see it. And then next week you had to have some more product there. Yeah, and I think that gives you freedom to get away with pushing boundaries, you know, because they need so many films that they're maybe not helicopter parenting every single one, so you can get away with more. Oh, you're exactly right. And, I mean, that continued to be the case really right up through the 70s in in low-budget and exploitation movies. Yeah, you could just get out there and, and... just make some products that would fill the bill and it didn't matter. Or you could get out there and use that system to make things that were better than they had any reason to be. And decoy <laughs> is certainly a picture that is better than it had any need to be. You're talking about watching this on a, a really awful VHS copy of this film and then seeing it now, seeing the version that's out on the, the DVD, I mean... Watching it tonight again, I was just like, wow, this really looks good. I mean, there are some scenes where maybe the colors, you know, it's black and white film, but maybe they aren't the same values from one shot to another. And I'm like, okay, you know, they should have timed that a little differently. But really, there's some great depth of feel to this. The, the, a lot of the, the shots are, I mean, it's very well shot, very well framed. And I'm just like, again, this doesn't, this is better than it really has to be. You know, this could look like they're on cardboard sets, but they don't. They could have shabby wardrobes, but, you know, God, jo- Jojo Portugal is one of the best dressed characters I've ever seen. I mean, Sheldon Leonard's hat just uh, amazes me. Every single time he's on screen, I can't stop staring at that hat. I love her hats, too, and this, that, that round fur hat that she wears when she first visits the jail is just incredible. And all those fabulous brooches she has that yeah. you know, attend her lovely, uh, her lovely bosom, which is very nicely <laughs> Demurely, but alluringly revealed in that. I don't even know what you call that. That's not a not, not a sweetheart neckline. A keyhole. It was like a keyhole. Yeah, it was a little cutout. Oh, that's exactly what it was. And I actually have a an old. I think it's an old Raymond Chandler novel someplace with a very old pulp cover with a woman wearing a dress that looks remarkably like that one. I thought when they got Frankie, you'd have sense enough to climb up off the trash heap. To your level. There's worse. Do they have this kind of trash on your level, Jojo? No. Don't have this kind either. Someday you're going to go too far, Portugal. Uh Uh-huh. When I do, I'll be coming after you. Keeping with the with the end of the film here, um, it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me, but in a good way. They kind of have the doc by the short hairs here because he's helped out with this whole idea of the the body snatching and bringing him back to life. And and it's like what five minutes after Frankie's back alive, he draws out this map. Uh, she ends up shooting him, thinking that now she can get the loot because they have the map. And then, the, the of course, Sheldon Leonard, Jojo Portugal, just shows up right then out of the blue. It kind of gives the doctor the scare of his life as far as like, oh, my God, he's on to us kind of thing. <laughs> when they're threatening him and, you know, like, you're in with us now, all this kind of stuff. You know, what about that autopsy report? And I'm just like, well, how? difficult is it to fake an autopsy report i i I read all the the kennedy books i know that it's easy to fake this stuff but when he looks down and there's the hippocratic oath and it zooms in (laughs) 
<laughs> the Hippocratic Oath. I mean, that is yet another one of those moments where you're just like, what is this movie doing to me? This is wonderful. And it's not just the Hippocratic Oath. It's the Hippocratic Oath, the long version. <laughs> no, it's not the first do no harm version. It, it's the one that you're going to have to sit down there and you're going to have to do some heavy reading. But he knows which part jumps out at him and the way that they give it an eye light, you know, just say like, here you go. This is what you need to read. And I do have to say that this was one of the best uses of vehicular manslaughter that I've ever seen in my life as well. Just the the scream, the way that she manipulates her her cohort into changing this tire, and then the scream when she runs him over. That, I, I mean, because we don't really see it, but we can hear it, and we hear him yell. So wonderful. I mean, that, again, just takes me, you know, just elevates this film for me. And for me, the thing that I just find so intensely compelling about that is that, you know, you can pull a trigger, you know, oh, yeah, you're dead. You know, you can just snap and pull a trigger. But that was a long game. She planned that beautifully. And that just incredibly cold hearted you know, premeditated viciousness just really sets her apart, you know, from a character like Vera, who's just angry and just wants to hurt you right now. This is where I have to admit the fallibility of my own memory, combined with the number of things that I've read about this film. I think that the first time I saw it, I saw the version in which she doesn't just run over him, but that she backs up. Yes! 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 I saw that, too. The first version that I saw, the Croatian version, she backs up and runs over him a second time. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, did I, was I just, is that so long ago? That's really funny. I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I think I saw the same thing. Now we need to get, like, unleashed the Internet flying monkeys. Like, somebody Google and find out this shit. Because we need that copy, and it is definitely not the copy that I have now, which I rewatched earlier tonight, just to refresh my my memory of it. She does not back up over him in the decoy crime wave double disc, which is what right. I have. I have that one too, and I also watched it on Warner Archive. Uh, they have a streaming service, and I watched it on that as well. And she only runs him over once on their version too. So, and that, and that's so funny because I was also sure that I imagined that, that it was like the psycho shower scene, like that you think it's more gory than it is because it's so intense. But the fact that you also saw that same thing vindicates me. And you vindicate me. With, <laughs> I know. That, yeah. Like, let's let's I, go do I, some I crimes that, together. I, was like, I really want to bring up one more thing about this whole idea of the, the end of the film when, um, you already mentioned the whole idea of of uh, her, you know, talking Jojo into coming down to her level and laughing in his in his face, but kind of that middle area between the running over and what would end up being kind of the beginning of the film, which actually takes place at the end, is when she finally double crosses the doctor, and I. <laughs> I love the way that the filmmakers try to psych us out by having him hold that shovel. (laughs) And that goes on forever, the way he lifts that shovel up over his head like he's going to brain her and then just takes it down onto the box. And it's like, who uses a shovel like that? Come on. (laughs) But it's so effective. It's just like, oh, wow, that's really nice. Okay, she does have her claws into this guy. You know, he... He had a, a a gun on her, I think, earlier when she did run the guy over, and she basically was able to use her feminine wiles, you know, her superpowers to just be like, "No, you're well, not." Well, he me. says to her, "I could kill you," and she looks him dead in the eye and hands him the gun because she knows that she's got his nuts right in her hand. He's not going to do shit, you know. And that's a brilliant. That's like this entire film is basically a femme fatale masterclass. Do you think that when she passes at the end that she knows what's inside of that box? Good question. I don't. I I think that she's still holding out the hope that she got what she wanted and that all that money is there, even though she knows that she's dying and it's going to do her no good whatsoever, wherever she's going. I think if she doesn't know what's in that box, she's victorious at the end of the film. 
Yeah, and it's a definitely a much darker and more noir ending that you did this. You destroyed everything and are dying for nothing. Yeah, it's a really nice kind of twist of the knife when they give that to us. But they do it in such a, a, a sweet way, just so well done. And Sheldon Leonard getting that last line of reading that note before we go to the to, to the end credit, you know, just such a such a great way to end this film. I love seeing Sheldon Leonard in this movie because I think by the time I first knew Sheldon Leonard's name, I it wasn't as an actor. You know, I knew him as I knew him as a producer, as as among other things, the man behind I Spy. I learned of Sheldon Leonard's name from a Bill Cosby skit about working on I Spy and him talking about Sheldon Leonard. And so I thought it was a fake name for a long time, just because it's such a great name, you know? Isn't there a Sheldon Lord, I think, was one of the uh, smut sleaze uh, pseudonyms used by Lawrence Block. I don't know, but that's a, that's a great tidbit. I, I might be wrong on that. It's some, again, while you're out there Googling uh, to find out whether she actually ran over the guy twice, double-check that Sheldon Lord factoid there, too. You are 100% right. The gods of the internet uh, are already pointing me to uh, vintagesleazepaperbacks.wordpress.com tagged Sheldon Lord with a picture of Lawrence Block okay, coming up. Okay, so. good to know, good to know. But still no word on the double, on the backing up over the guy a second time. Not yet. We'll have to see if we can get some confirmation by the end of the show here. Well, either that or you and I are part of a, a bizarre hallucinatory mind link, and that's fascinating in and of itself. And that could be. It's Well, you know that female hysteria, you know, all of us people with vaginas, you know, we just get ourselves so whipped up sometimes that we don't know what's really happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then we run guys over twice. Twice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we have the last laugh. Always. Always. As you laugh in Sheldon Leonard's face, and he's just like, damn it. And then he quits his job at the police, goes to work in this little town as a bartender, and then one night this crazy guy comes in and starts claiming that he had been in this town all of his life and that every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, you know? Get me. I'll get my wings. <laughs> All right, we are going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. Have you heard of the Roundtable Podcast? Here's how it works. We invite authors onto the show. Welcome to the big chair at the Roundtable, Sherry Priest, Tim Pratt, Gail Carriger, Seanan McGuire, Patrick Rothfuss. We ask them questions. What an excellent question. You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Wow, no one's asked me that before. Then we invite writers on to present a story idea. The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting. It's a superhero western. It's a steampunk, dieselpunk fusion just because of the timeline that it's in. There's a supernatural horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller peppered into it. And then we workshop the story. You're going to know what your ending is when you know what your conflict is. Brian, I like your I like your Sopranos meets mm -hmm. Iron Punk meets Rome meets psychotic future killers. I think that's that's a, a great mashup. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and I can't believe I hadn't thought of that. Sure. I think I think that's that's a must. I love that idea. And everyone leaves in a state of writerly bliss. You guys have given me so much to work with right now. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> the ideas that I've gotten out of this today there's just there's the gears are just running up. I've, I've <laughs> spending this time with you guys has made it a whole lot more likely that this will get written. The Roundtable Podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. The Roundtable Podcast. Literary alchemy. One podcast at a time. Do you desire to add yet another entry in the endless legion of film review podcasts to your playlist? Can you not stand the thought of having any moment of your dull, pointless, waking life intruded upon with the sounds from the real world, and would prefer to listen to a small cast of assholes talk about movies? Then, they must be destroyed on sight! Probably meets your bare minimum requirements. Join Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest hosts as they talk about films from every genre, ranging from the obscure and schlocky to the well-known top-dollar classics. 
look for They Must Be Destroyed On Sight on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and Facebook. That's They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. All right, we are back, and we are talking about decoy. So, yeah, I'm not sure really where else we want to go with this one. The The one thing that I'm curious about is uh, what other films that this might remind you of. We did mention Detour earlier, which was just a year before. I mean, this seems like prime time for great films noir during this, this particular era. But frankly, it also reminds me of a lot of films that were made during the 70s, in which getting out on the road is either a pathway to getting to know yourself, getting to reshape your life, or it's race with the devil, and your life instantly goes to hell, and yet you're still stuck on a highway. I I think part of the iconography of decoy that is kind of great is the iconography of the American road, where anything can happen. It can take you anywhere. It can take you to heaven. It can take you to hell. It can take you to new opportunities, or it can somehow make you circle back to all of the things that you thought you were getting away from. That's definitely, I, I, I think that's a good, uh, a good observation. And, you know, I think that the film that it most reminds me of would be uh, Too Late for Tears, you know, which, interestingly enough, starts on the road with, a, you know, a big bag of money, you know, and a woman who can't stand to live beneath, you know, what she would like to have as her lifestyle you know, and I think that that's another really, really amoral, money-oriented femme fatale that is is a kind of a genetic uh, pair there for Margot Shelby. It's interesting that they paired this one with Crime Wave on the uh, the DVD set because that was another one that was really tough to find for a long time, but. That one also holds up for me, and especially because of the cast of that one. It's amazing to, you know, the, I know that Miss Jean Gilly had, you know, many films before this, even though this was her introduction title, and that this movie was kind of a, almost a Valentine from her new husband, Jack Bernard, to her, and really was there supposed to put her on the map. And then unfortunately, they broke up, and she ended up dying of pneumonia a couple of years later. But really, I didn't recognize, like, some of these faces are kind of familiar. Obviously, Sheldon Leonard, I know. But some of the other faces here and there are kind of familiar. But no, nothing like Crime Wave, where it's just like, yeah, Charles Buczynski, Timothy Carey, and then uh, Sterling Hayden is, uh, was uh, one of the main characters in that. And, and even the other folks I seem to remember were people. Whereas this one, I was just like, yeah, I don't really recognize too many of these folks in this. But I almost like that better, where I don't recognize the faces because then it also plays into that whole i don't know who's going to make it through this film and that barely anybody does i mean really only the familiar face of sheldon leonard makes it through the film it's like okay that that's kind of cool <laughs> absolutely and i think that you know that gives it a weird almost a realism you know in that the you think you're looking at real people doing stuff as opposed to movie stars acting I think that's absolutely true. It really doesn't feel as though you're looking at movie stars, even though everybody's makeup is all the women's makeup is a little bit too good for uh, you know average women you would see on the street, and their clothes are a little bit too designed. But because they aren't star faces, they feel like regular people in the most bizarre, not regular, not normal, completely <laughs> freaky situation that you could ever imagine. From the internet ticker, there has been confirmation that you two are not crazy, that there was a second backup. Yes. Yes, That there was a second hit. Okay, so what happened? Why is that not included? Apparently, the film print that this this DVD was made out of did not have that, and it was... Shown at the American Cinematheque. It's probably the best print that there is out there, but yeah, apparently it was shown on television, possibly in Croatia, possibly <laughs> other places, with that backup scene in place. Oh, I, all right. See? We are vindicated. So when can we get an uncensored version of Decoy now? Oh, man. We managed That's so badly. We got this really nice-looking version of it, but yeah, we need to see her being just a little bit more vicious than she already is. And who knows, there might be another second or two that are missing Yeah, here. now now it's like I want to see them side by side. 
Yeah, sit there and then do the whole frame-by-frame uh, frame analysis. Why not? Heck yeah. They did talk about it being shown at the American Cinematheque. I mean, I'm very surprised that this hasn't kind of entered into the the Pantheon a little bit more. You know, I, I know that, that uh, the Film Noir Foundation has done a great job with things like bringing back the Prowler and really kind of, you know, shedding a light on this. I would love to see them kind of do the same thing with Decoy. That would be great. I mean, it's people like us that, recognize these films and that we can sit here and go oh yeah the, the prowler it's it's now popular quote unquote <laughs> compared to what it once was but you know it's it's those those are the kind of people we're the kind of people that those these films are made for we're just like oh yeah yeah this is great or now you know all these years later what what uh 60 70 years later where we're still talking about this movie and that it can still have this power over us i mean it's like yeah yeah more people need to see this let's let, let's make sure that this enters into you know when people start talking about films noir let's make sure that this rolls off of their tongue well that's why we're here proselytizing join us there's even a little bonus on the DVD of this called uh, A Map to Nowhere, where they, uh, the, I think Stanley Rubin was still around for that. Unfortunately, like I said, um, Gene Gilly passed away whew, just a couple years after this, and then nobody else really survived this one. Yeah, who'd have thought he was a fan? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> When Dick Cavett showed up on the documentary, I'm like, what, really? <laughs> and then that it said, like, film noir fan or something like that, I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, it makes sense, but I never really associate Dick Cavett with film noir. <laughs> Nor do I. I probably I should. Yeah. In, in defense of this film. So, you know, yes, yay Dick Cavett. So is there anything else we need to talk about decoy? Well, I just think that we do have to talk very briefly about what is up with the female hairstyling. In that film, specifically the nurse, it's like they just styled her hair down to about shoulder length and then just said, fuck it. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it looks really weird. Like, and that's another funny downside of having things be crystal clear is that, it, it, you know, it's sort of like the nice dim lighting in the strip club. You know, you don't want that creep light shining down there because like oh, maybe we want to smooth over some of those little imperfections. And wow, watching it again, you know, a nice crystal clear copy, I was just baffled by that strange sort of candy floss, like extra layer of puffy hair. And even even Margot's hair is like a little, you know, shabby there towards the end. So I, I'm curious as to the, the thought, I guess, again, cheap, low budget, you know, they just go with, you know, you got to come in and style your own hair extra. Thank you for saying that, because I also noticed that this <laughs> time. All I could think was, okay, your hair is absolutely gorgeous until about four inches yeah. from the bottom. <laughs> Frizz City. And okay. it was really astonishing. Are we like, there's like a twin, like psychic twin thing going on here that's like scaring me a little here. Are we like actually the same person? I think perhaps we are. We're doppelgangers. <laughs> I think we might be. One person's Betty, the other person's Diane. Yeah, yeah. One is Dominique, the other is Danielle. Yeah. There you go. There you go. I knew you two would get along. Oh, you were absolutely right. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. probably had his ear glued to the wall from the minute we came up here. Well, forget it, darling. Please. You have stated that you're absolutely certain this is the man you saw in Nick's on both occasions. 
Now be careful, because on your answer may depend a man's life. Are you absolutely positive he's the same man? I am. No! Come on, son. No! I can do it! I... That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Stranger on the Third Floor, where Maitland will be coming back and we'll be joined by Sam Deegan. Maitland, I know I'm going to be asking you a lot this month, but what have you been up to lately? I've still been working on republishing a series of vintage gay novels from the 70s. And uh, on November 17th, I'm going to be doing a Miskatonic Institute of Horror presentation in New York at the Morbid Anatomy Museum on gay horror adult novels of the 1970s. I think it's going to be really good fun. You know, the Miskatonic Institute is the brainchild of uh, Kayla Denise. I very much look forward to sharing all of my thoughts about these gay adult horror novels, complete with a lovely slideshow of covers, with anybody who uh, wants to stop by. So yeah, November 17th, Morbid Anatomy Museum. So this actually drops on November 16th. So if folks are listening to this on the day of or the day after it goes live, be sure to get over there and check that out because I know we've got a lot of listeners in New York and they're definitely in for a treat. And plus you get to see Maitland live. You get to see more than just the disembodied voice of Maitland McDonough. And all those covers, believe me, it'll be worth your time. Now, Chris, the last time that we talked, you were chasing down rodeos. Well, what what was uh, the story with that, and what have you been up to lately? Well, uh, that was a very long stretch of research uh, for the third Angel Bear novel, which if I don't finish by the end of this year, I might have to take an automatic weapon into a fast food restaurant. Uh, yeah, I need to finish this book. I It is beyond, beyond late for delivery. But be that as it may, it is called The Get Off, and it takes place in the world of rodeo bullfighters, who are the guys who outsiders frequently refer to as rodeo clowns, although well, they, they, they don't tend to use that term. You notice I was very careful to not say rodeo clowns. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's a division of labor. There's guys that are funny who are on the mic, and there are guys who fight bulls, and they're di- different job. You know, back in the old days, there was only one guy. You know, the one guy did all the funny stuff and the protection, but now it's, it's two separate jobs. But if you're interested, you know, you can stick with hard case crime there, and as soon as, uh, as, soon as that's uh, ready to hit the shops, you'll, you'll, get a, you'll get a ping from those guys. And in the meanwhile... You know, if you're dying to read something of mine and you can't wait, uh, I got a new comic book title, which is out right now. It's called Peepland, and it's a semi-autobiographical, hard-boiled crime story set in Times Square in 1986. Uh, and it all, the story all revolves around the people who work in a peep emporium, which I worked in back in the day as as a teen. And uh, I grew up on 45th Street and 9th Avenue. So that's my neighborhood. That's my stomping ground. And so this project, uh, it's a five book uh, series, uh, People Land. It's, uh, it's kind of my love letter, you know, to my old stomping ground. I have to say, I always loved the great big neon Peepland eye. It was one of my favorites. <laughs> yes. I'm square. <laughs> so good. So good. Yeah, those days are long gone. Maitland, would you have passed that uh, on your way to going to see uh, Night of the Creeps in 40 seconds, uh, on 42nd Street? I would have seen it in that neighborhood. Absolutely. Well, there's actually <laughs> more than one. You know, it was sort of like a... a, a empire of people you know there's more than one and when you go to apply for the job you know they assign you you know to which one of these places that you know you're going to get a booth so where were the where were the the various uh outposts of the well, people of course before? the big one the big one show world you know that was eighth avenue 
you know, forty mm-hmm. second, uh, and then there was another one that was further in along Eighth, and another one up on Broadway, uh, and they were all sort of like outposts of the same company. And I think there's one. I was talking with Ardai about this. I think there's one left, but I'm not sure where. And he was saying that it's the only one left that still has live girls, you know. But everything else now is gone, alas. But don't let that stop you. Pick up Peepland, and you can revisit those bad old days. And they were great bad old days. Yeah, I, they were. And I wasn't even there, and I bemoaned the whole quote-unquote cleanup of Times Square. So I wish I could revisit that world. That's actually a world. plot point in Peepland, and it's funny because, you know, I, I've been working on this project for about five years, and we have a, we have a character who's a real estate mogul who wants to buy up cheap buildings and clean up Times Square based on a certain individual who's famous in the news whose name we will not say on this podcast. But we we used that famous presidential character uh, in our story to kind of give the angle that it's a sleazy plot to clean up Times Square, you know, and then everything that happened recently happened after we had already finished the story. And it's kind of a weird, you know, reality is is stranger than fiction. But I hope that you both pick up this title because I think that you'll appreciate a lot of the little Easter eggs that I put in there for old New Yorkers. Like, for example, the whole story is based around an ugly George character, you know, who's kind of, you know, based. It's not exactly him, but it's kind of based on him. And we have, you know, like Midnight Pink, you know, is the is the TV show. And, you know, so so we have a lot of little nods to like, you know, the old, old smutty Times Square. That is awesome. Yeah, I will definitely be picking that up. I'm so glad to hear that you're involved in that. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thank you to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's show. you also find links over to Chris's site, over to Maitland's books. And you can, uh, while you're there, you can link over to our iTunes and rate and review the show, where you can go over to Patreon and, and donate to the show. If you don't have the money, that's fine. You can still leave us a rating and review. It's free. It's easy. Every rating, every review, and every donation help the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Jojo, please, just this once, come down to my level.